It's only appropriate on such a cold morning that I should talk about warming the heart. In, uh, I'm going to try to warm the cockles of your heart. And what are cockles? Would somebody please tell me what they are? I don't know. But um, um, let me summarize what I said two days ago. Uh, I said there were three aspects of good preaching. I, I talked about uh, preaching uh, biblically, preaching attractively, preaching powerfully. Now, uh, with regard to the truth, that means preaching biblically means getting people to know the truth, preaching attractively, getting them to love the truth, preaching powerfully, getting them to do the truth. With regard to Christ, preaching biblically means to show Jesus Christ from every text. Uh, preaching attractively means showing Jesus, uh, faith in Jesus as the motivation and the means for obey, obeying God. Uh, with regard to preaching powerfully means lifting Christ up as someone to adore, not just someone to believe in in some generic way. Uh, when it comes to the listeners, uh, preaching biblically means you're enlightening and informing them. Uh, preaching attractively means that you are persuading them and compelling them. Uh, uh, with, with regard to preaching powerfully, it means that you're moving them to action. Uh, another way to put it, of course, is uh, we are, first of all, supposed to make God and the gospel clear, then real, then life itself. And so we've gone around that circle, you know, biblically, attractively, powerfully. Somebody could ask, well, is this the same as Aristotle, logos, pathos, ethos? Yeah and no. Yeah, but no. And here's the reason why I didn't mention him. I, the reason why I went to Augustine on the first day to try to justify this is because I think Augustine has a biblical understanding of the heart. See, logos, pathos, ethos is roughly speaking, roughly the same. Logos is what you say. Pathos is how you say it. And ethos is the one saying it. Uh, three parts to persuasion. Uh, being rational and then moving the feelings and then uh, being a person who embodies the, uh, the truth, and that's what makes you persuasive. And that's right, but I very, uh, today, I just, it's instructive to see how what Aristotle says and what Augustine says, and I think what the Bible says are different here. Because the Greeks, of course, in a sense, would pit thinking and feeling against each other, or at least they would separate them, and in some ways pit them against each other because the Greeks believed that the feelings were resident basically in the body. I mean, even the Greeks had some idea that the feelings had something to do with the physical. They understood that. But the mind, the, uh, the, the reason was supposed to be uh, resident in the soul. The soul was higher than the body, and therefore reason was higher than the feelings, and therefore a mature human being was one who used your reason to, in a sense, sublimate the feelings. And it's also true that in early modernity, uh, the Enlightenment tended to follow that Greek classical notion and lifted up reason as something that you could so somehow detach from everything else. And uh, saw faith as more a matter of feelings and reason was sort of something higher. And so early modernity, in a sense, followed uh, the Greek uh, separation and almost pitting against the, uh, one another the, the thinking and the feeling. But late modernity, where we are now, some of you know, uh, has almost reversed what the Greeks did. 
the age of authenticity, I'm, I'm going with, that's a term that Charles Taylor uses. The age of authenticity is the age of expressive individualism. Expressive individualism, as was defined by Robert Bella and the Habits of the Heart, is that you find your identity, you become the person you want to be by expressing yourself. You, you find out your deepest self and express it. That's, you have to be free to express yourself. And in, in that way of thinking, the feelings are actually more true to who you are than you're thinking. Because the feelings are visceral, the feelings are your desires. And today, it's almost the other way around. Your feelings we trust, but, your, but thinking and reason is a little bit suspect. So you might say the modern world has always had trouble integrating thinking and feeling. Um, and the reason it's had trouble doing it is because the modern world has not been well-informed enough, our culture has not been well-informed enough by what the Bible says about the heart. Because the heart, according to the Bible, is not mainly the seat of the emotions. Surely you've heard this. You hear it in theology, you hear it in, in, in uh, uh, your biblical studies, but I'm going to try to apply this for a moment to preaching here. On the one hand, uh, what the Bible says about the heart actually helps us adapt to our modern time. Um, the, um, put it like this, uh, we do live in an individualistic culture. And by preaching to the heart, as I'm going to define it in a minute, uh, you are, in a sense, adapting in a good way to an individualistic culture. Even though my theology is that the church is not a voluntary organization. The church is an institution of God. Nevertheless, in a secular culture where everything is contested, all belief is contested, the fact of the matter is our churches are functionally voluntary societies because nobody will be in your church unless they choose to be there. Even if they're born into your church, as it were, as they grow up, um, their faith is going to be contested and they're going to have to choose to remain in the church. And by, by uh, preaching to the heart, in a certain sense, we are um, adapting in a good way to the reality that every single person who comes to your church is going to have to choose to come to that church. There's no, there's no social pressure anymore. There's no cultural pressure. Uh, and eventually, even that pressure that you have in parts of the Deep South uh, will go away. And uh, everybody's going to have to choose their faith. And in that sense, by preaching to the heart and learning to preach to the heart, which means to persuade and compel, not just to inform, but to persuade and compel, in a good way is adapting to the, re the reality of where we are. And that's fine. You should adapt to your culture. I tried to say that yesterday. But on the other hand, the biblical teaching about the heart also is radically countercultural. And here's the reason why. The heart is not just the seat of the emotions. The heart is the seat of the mind, the will, and the emotions. Uh, uh, because we use the term heart in English to mean the emotions as opposed to the head, it always brings people up when they start reading the Bible and they see uh, the Bible talking about thinking with the heart. And other places, uh, it, it does seem to talk about feeling with the heart. Okay, that fits. But then there's other places where it talks about acting or willing with the heart. And you begin to realize, if you're just trying to take the biblical data seriously, that the, the heart is more than just emotions. And so uh, even though I, there's a million places I could have gone for it, one of my favorite places on this is a, a little book that the Proclamation Trust in England put out years ago uh, called The Practical Preacher. And it's a series of essays. And David Jackman, who taught 
uh, was the head of the Cornhill course that taught expository preaching in, in, in London for many years. David Jackman says this, according to the Bible, the heart is not so much the center of the emotions as we tend to think of it. The heart is, in the Bible, the heart is the center of the personality where you make decisions, especially where you decide the direction of your life. And a little later he says, in biblical thinking, the center of a person's being was the heart. The affections then are the target to hit in preaching. We dare not rest content with striking merely the mind, though we must never bypass it either. Okay, now we're getting into it. The heart is the seat of your deepest commitments. I think um, Augustine, when he says, uh, what makes you what you are is what you love. Not even what you believe, but what you love. We have to be careful because right away when we think of love, we think of feelings. But when, he, when your loves are the things you're most hoping in, the things you're most committed to, the things you're most trusting in, uh, it's, the, it's the things that capture your imagination. Now, Jonathan Edwards was as good as anyone at refusing to break down the various faculties of, of, the, of the human mind the way we tend to do, rooted in classical thought, and pit them against each other. Uh, Edwards did not want to separate the mind and the emotions from one another because they both are rooted in the heart. And he would go so far as to say, if you say you know something, but you don't feel it, you don't really know it. Let me give you an example. Kathy and I knew a girl, uh, and she's grown with children and all that now. She's in a PCA church uh, and a fine Christian woman. But anyway, she was in our, little, our church years ago uh, in Hopewell, Virginia, and she was a teenager. She was like 15 or 16, and she was getting very upset and agitated. And she came in to see me. I was her pastor. And uh, she was very upset about how her life was going. And at one point, <laughs> I'll never forget, she says... Well, I know, let me say, I actually wrote down what I remember. She says, well, I know God loves me. I know he saved me. I know he's going to take me to heaven. I know him, his daughter. Uh, I know that uh, I'm going to live uh, forever with him. I know I'm going to be resurrected. And then she said, but what good is all that when no boy at school will even look at you? Now, um, you could say <laughs> she believed that Jesus loved her, but she was, you know, she was a girl, and she was a kid, and she was a little boy crazy. But Jonathan Edwards would say that basically she had fixed her heart on male adoration, and so she had the opinion that Jesus loved her. He didn't, she didn't really know from her heart that he loved her. Rather, um, male affection was more real to her heart than Jesus' affection. If boys liked her, she felt good about herself. She felt like she had meaning in life. She, everything was fine. If she knew Jesus loved her, it didn't seem to really affect her that much. It certainly wasn't helping her. And so what you would say is that her heart, in her heart, uh, I mean, she knew that Jesus loved her with her head, but frankly, she didn't know Jesus loved her. I mean, Edwards would, wouldn't even say she knew it. She had a notion of it, but she, she had an opinion of it, but she didn't actually know it from the heart. Uh, boy's affection at that point in her life was really the thing that she had set her heart on. And there was the th it's what captured her imagination. It's what he, she thought about when in her spare time. It's what, it's, what, it's what motivated her, and therefore it's what had captured her heart in a way that Jesus hadn't. 
You know what the goal of a good preacher is? The goal of the preacher is to make Jesus' love as real to people as they're listening, as, as, that, as boys' love was and boys' affection, male affection was to her at that time. You see? It's not enough just to say, Jesus loves you, let me parse it, let me explain it, let me show you the biblical text. I, I've got to make it real to the people I'm listening to because that's actually what affects how they live. Christ's love was an abstract concept to her. It wasn't actually something that was real to her heart. And it's the job of the preacher to get Christ's love, to grip her imagination, and therefore have her know it in her heart, not just know it in her head. And uh, by the way, she's fine now. I just want you to know. And I hate to pick on her. And she knows, by the way, occasionally I use this illustration. We've, I've talked to her about it. Um, and she, we laugh about it, but it actually, it's a, it's a perfectly good illustration. It's one of the reasons, by the way, why uh, David Martin Lloyd-Jones was, uh, some years ago, giving a lecture on Edwards, Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards has four basic uh, works on uh, revival. But the one that's the least well-known is called Thoughts on Revival. And it's the only place where he talks much about preaching. He doesn't talk much about preaching anywhere else. But in that place, he talks about the fact that the goal of preaching is not simply um, uh, uh, information, but an impression. And uh, I know that when Dr. Lloyd-Jones was lecturing on this, he tried to say, um, a minister is not there just to give information. A minister is there to make the knowledge live. I remember he said that. I'm here to take, not just to tell you the truth. If you want the truth, you can go read a book. I am here to make the truth live. And this is the reason why, I think I may have even referred to this, um, this might be uh, apocryphal, but my understanding was that Dr. Lloyd-Jones said, I don't mind it if people are taking notes while I'm preaching, at least not in the beginning. But if they're still taking notes at the end, I failed. Because I'm not, because a preacher is not supposed to be telling people what they should know and what they should do so that you write it down, now I'll go out and do it. A minister is actually trying to change people in this, right there, in this, on the spot. Not just saying, now, here's what you should do, go out there and change your life. No, I'm going to change your life right here because I'm going to show you the things that you've been trusting in are not worth trusting in, and the one that you know a little bit about God is the one that you really should trust in. And I want, I want you to start to feel a desire to love him and serve him right here. And I want to sort of pull your heart out toward it. That's what it means basically to preach to the heart. Uh, it's in the Bible. I mean, in the Old Testament, uh, there's constant talks about you're, you're circumcised in the flesh, but you're not circumcised in the heart. What does that mean? It means you've given your, you know, God your duty, but not your whole self. Psalm 50, by the way, is about this. Uh, there are other interesting spots. For example, uh, Ephesians 3. I think I made an allusion to this. Uh, no, I didn't. Not, not to you, I didn't. Uh, in Ephesians chapter 3, there's this very interesting place where Paul's praying for the Ephesians, and he says, uh, what I'm praying for you is that you be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints or actually to have strength to grasp with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. Now, commentators have always noticed 
that he's talking to Christians or he's praying for Christians and he says, I want Christ to dwell in your heart by faith. Wait a minute. If you're a Christian, isn't Christ already dwelling in your heart by faith? And I want you to grasp the love of Christ. Well, wait a minute. Is, how could you be a Christian without grasping the love of Christ? And every commentator, you can look every single good commentator up, they say that Paul must be talking about the experience. Uh, obviously, Paul, uh, Christ is objectively in the heart of a, of a Christian, and yet to say, I want Christ to dwell in your hearts and I want you to grasp his love, it's talking about experience. And there's nothing quite like uh, Dr. Lloyd-Jones' exposition of those verses where he says that uh, Paul is praying not for a change in circumstances. It's interesting, you know, he's not saying, I pray that your life will go better, that you'll prosper, that no invading armies will run over your villages. He doesn't pray for circumstances. What he says is, I want you to experience what you know. I want, to, I want you to fully grasp with your entire being what you know. And that's the job, frankly, of a preacher, is to help people do that. It's almost to meditate and pray for them, with them, right in the middle of the service. So anyway, let, let me, so that's enough on what we're talking about. But now I would like to talk to you about how you do it. Five, six ways. Let me see. One, two, three, four, five. Five ways to preach to the heart, to reach the heart. And so I'll just give you this, these five, and then I'll go back through them. You need to preach affectionately, imaginatively, practically, wondrously, and of course, Christ, Christocentrically. Affectionately, imaginatively, practically, wondrously, and Christocentrically. So let's work right through them. First of all, affectionately. What I mean by that is the main way, one of the main ways to preach to the heart and is to preach from the heart. If you want to preach to their heart, you have to preach from the heart. And this is what I mean, well, this is what I meant when I said two days ago, non-deliberate transparency, which is infuriating, isn't it? In other words, it's a transparency. It's the ability to show people your heart without trying. Don't try. You see, there's only three possible ways for you to preach when it, when it comes to the affections. One is flat affect. You're just up there telling the story. It's very clear that your own heart and your own emotions are not that engaged. Um, there's flat affect. <clears throat> the second possibility is acting. You, you put on a performance. And, uh, and the third possibility is your heart's engaged. Now, um, how do you do that? Well, here's some things that you have to avoid. Uh, one of them, of course, is when it comes to preaching from the heart, is you have to be very careful about, oh, well, let me give you the easiest thing. You need to know your material. You need to know your material so well that you can preach from the heart. If you don't know your material, if you're not confident in it, and if you don't know it cold, you will actually be up there essentially uh, distracted by the fact that you're not quite sure what you're supposed to say next. <laughs> there is no way you can preach from the heart. There is no way unless you know your material cold, which means you have to do a lot of preparation. Now, not only preparation of the sermon, but then that the, you really have to go over it and over it and over it in your mind so that you're not too tied to your notes. And so you're not, and, and it's not just tied to your notes. I mean, you might not even look down and still be distracted by the fact that you are working at remembering it. And if you're working at remembering it, I'm, you're just not preaching from the heart. 
Um, I, I, I uh, often say to people, if I'm trying to train them to preach, is uh, if you're saying, well, now, the Greek word has three different meanings in different, you know, you can look down at your, at your notes if you want to, or you can, you can go into a something of a lecturing mode for certain parts of the sermon. Of course you can. But when you're telling people about their sin, or you're telling them how great Jesus is, you need to look up at least. Don't be looking down like this. You can't. How in the world can you do that? Um, but, but it's also true that it, you can tell when the person's trying to remember what he's supposed to say and when the person is saying it. And so the first thing is you've just got to know your material cold or you'll never preach in the heart. Secondly, you've got to watch the subtexts. Now, I'll give you the two subtexts you need to... You know what a subtext is? A subtext is, is the real message that's coming out because of your attitude. Uh, now, you know, Derek Thomas has a very interesting... Um, in his little classic chapter on expository preaching in Feed My Sheep, he's got a little section on subtexts, and they're really funny. You know, one of the subtexts is, I've recently read Louis Burkhoff, and I want you all to know that I have. <laughs> And there's a, there's a number of great subtexts. A subtext is that uh, it's, the, it's, the, it's, the, it's the nonverbal message that comes across because of your attitude. And what's frightening is the audience is very, very, very sensitive to those things. In fact, uh, I, one time I heard Alistair Begg uh, say that one of the things, uh, especially if you're a new... If, if, <clears throat> if, if a person is visiting and has not heard you preach before, or if you're preaching to a, a new congregation, as this especially happens... He says, it would be very upset to know that most people are not, for at least the first few minutes, really listening much to what they're saying. They're trying to figure out whether they like you or not. Um, and if you say, oh, that's not right, well, well, are you not supposed to embody your message? They're, they're checking out whether you're a dour person or whether you're a happy person, whether you're a, an uptight person or a relaxed person. They're, they're checking all these things out. They're not doing it very deliberately. They're doing it kind of, you know, almost instinctively. But they're really, really, really sniffing for subtexts. Here's the two subtexts that you need to be careful about. The first subtext is, aren't we great? We're the kind of people who believe these kinds of things, and we're not the kind of people who don't. There's a, there's a smugness, basically, that comes forth, through. Um, it's, not, it's, it's, it's not so much... I'm great. It's like, aren't we the great kind of people? We're like this. We're not like all those other kinds of Christians. And it's a smugness. And boy, it is a huge problem with, with new seminary graduates. <laughs> because you're so proud, not so much of yourself, but of your tradition and of your heritage and of your theology. And it just comes across. So there's a smugness. It's a, it's a subtext that goes, aren't we just really great? Wisdom perishes with us. You know, that kind of thing. The, the, now, that's smug. The second subtext is, don't you think I'm great? Don't you want to come back next week? Don't you think I'm well-read? Now, that's more along the lines of what I think Derek Thomas was pointing out in a couple of his versions of it. That's the insecure attitude. Clearly, here's a person who's trying very hard to look good, very hard to be competent. Um, it's just, you can just tell they're insecure. You're, they're nervous. And I don't know how you get over it. My, my mother-in-law once, she had five children, and when Kathy was pregnant with our first child, she used to always say, I'm going to write a book someday, How to Raise the First Child Like the Fifth. You know, how to be as relaxed, 
not worry, you know, when the child cries, you know, by the time you get to the fifth child, the child cries and you say, they're fine, you know. <laughs> and the, the first child, you're like, what's wrong, what's wrong, should we go to a doctor? We haven't been able, what, are they hung, is he hungry, you know. And she says, I'm just going to, you know, write a, you know, write a book, How to Raise the First Child Like the Fifth. And we, once we were halfway through, you know, our first child, we said, that's impossible. The only way to get to the, being as relaxed as you are with the fifth child is to go through the first four. <laughs> I mean, there's just no way to get there with any other way. And I, there's a certain sense in which I don't know how uh, you overcome the fear of not being good and, and the, and the self-consciousness. It just, it takes time. So let, don't let me give you the impression, I think, that you can just overcome it, but you do have to eventually overcome it. You have to stop thinking so much about how you look. You have to stop worrying so much about whether or not people think this is a good sermon or not. You've got to stop worrying about, is this a good one or is it a middle size? Is this a single, a double, a triple, or a home run as you're preaching? Um, because that subtext will kill your ability to preach from the heart. Uh, every bit as much as if you're you know, stuck in your notes in a way. So you have to watch for the subtext. I mean, obviously, the subtext ought to be, isn't Jesus great? Not, is, aren't we great, and don't you think I'm great? It should be, isn't Jesus great? Okay, so you have to watch for the subtext. You have to know your material cold, cold, cold. And I guess there's one more thing that's very important, very important. You've got to have a great prayer life. Now, you know I'm supposed to say that. It's almost like, of course, everybody who lectures on sermon preaching has to say, you've got to have a good prayer life. But here's what I mean. Um, if you're not distracted because you don't know your material, and if, you're, if you've kind of overcome the subtext, then uh, what's going to happen as you preach? Uh, it ought to be something like what happens when you pray. So that when you're talking about the holiness of God, the people ought to see that you are, you are sensing the holiness of God as you speak, and you're, and you're feeling some awe. Or when you're talking about the wisdom of God, that you're really resting in that wisdom as you're preaching about it. Or when you're talking, of course, about the love of God, that you're, you're tasting it, as it were, and, and delighting in it. So uh, it's, there, there was, there's some old, I don't even know who wrote it up, but uh, somebody said that a good preacher tastes the food that he's feeding to the children. Have you ever noticed that sometimes you're trying to feed a child in a high chair and the kid's like this, and then if you're really, really, really courageous, what you do is you pick up the food and you taste it and you say, ooh, that's good. And sometimes the child will go like that because you're tasting the food. By the way, the child has to be of a certain age before you can really do that with any, with any actual uh, integrity. <laughs> Because if you're really tasting baby food and you say, isn't that good, you know, you're just a liar, you're a liar, it's no good. But, I'm, but the basic idea is you should be tasting the food you're feeding the children. What does that mean? It means when you're talking about God, they can see you yearning for him. Now, that doesn't work unless you get rid of the subtext, unless you know your material. But also, you've got to have a prayer life so that the yearning you sometimes feel in the prayer life uh, it begins to happen in, the, in, in when you're preaching. It's not exactly like you're praying as you preach. I mean, I think that would be distracting for me to actually be. Occasionally I do, right? Occasionally you can. But by and large, it's not so much that you are literally praying 
as you preach, but rather that you're yearning for God and you're sensing him the way you, you do, hopefully, when you pray sometimes. And so uh, that's what I mean by saying you've got to preach affectionately. You've got to, they've got to see you yearning. They've got to see you tasting, uh, tasting it as you're feeding it to them. You've got to basically be saying, mmm, it's good. And then, the, and then the, little, the little listeners get out there and they open their mouths for you. So anyway, if you're going to... If you, that illustration doesn't completely go. And speaking of illustrations, point two. First of all, you've got to preach affectionately, non-deliberate transparency. You've got to be able to feel like they can sort of see into your heart. And they will see into your heart, by the way. They will. They'll see the flat affect, or they can see the performance, or they can see into your heart. Okay, secondly, imaginatively. Now, this is illustrations, so here we go. Uh, the heart is more affected by illustrations than propositions in general. Um, it's Jonathan Edwards did not tell many stories. Even when he got to Stockbridge, he told some stories, but by and large, he didn't tell many stories. But what he did do was he used metaphors uh, all the time. And I actually think, though, there's no place where I see him actually saying this. Stories tend to work more on the emotions, but metaphors, I think, are better at dealing with the heart because they both instruct and affect. See, metaphors and illustrations, they instruct and affect. So, for example, uh, here's a great one. Here's the proposition. Uh, your good deeds cannot save you. Hmm? Is that a good reform proposition? Absolutely. <laughs> good systematic theology, sort of thing Ligon Duncan would say. Your good deeds cannot save you. But then let's add something. Any more than a spider web can stop a falling rock. Now, what, what did we just do there? <laughs> well, we united two fields of discourse. That's what we're doing. Here's one field of discourse. It's logical proposition. Your good deeds cannot save you. But then there's another field of discourse. It's, uh, uh, it's uh, the, re the physical reality that a spider web does not have a whole lot of uh, ability to keep out a boulder. And so if a rock comes through the spider web, it destroys it. And it's not like it even gives. It's not like the rock comes down and, and for one minute, you know, it goes up and then goes through. No, it's shoop, that's it, you know. It's almost like the web's not even there, you know, bang. And you, you know all that from experience. You know this isn't like a, a rock coming down on a trampoline or a mattress. Going through a spider web, bang. And you're bringing those two things together. And on the one hand, what it means is you're sent, it, it's, it's appealing to the senses because you've seen this happen. You felt rocks hit you. Uh, you've seen this happen. On the other hand, here's, the, here's the, the one field of discourse. You bring it together, and it's vivid. And uh, it, 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 in a sense, it's informing the mind because it's telling you something. It's instructing you. On the other hand, it's affecting the heart. Because it's not just something that you're, it's not just instructing you, it's affecting you. And it's so important when you see somebody like Edwards, or like C.S. Lewis, by the way, um, who are constantly doing what you might call word pictures. All the time, all the time, all the time. And the best preachers, it's just an instinct. They just do it all the time. They go right to it. Lots and lots of them weren't in the, they weren't even in their preparation very often. They just don't know how not to do it. 
Um, and so let me give you some examples, though. You can have more extended ones, but that's just absolutely critical. You've got to be able to, to bring those two things together, that you bring two fields of discourse together. Probably, oh, I'll give you two or three examples. Here's God speaking to Cain, Genesis 4. And he says to Cain, basically, sin will get you into trouble. Your sin, you know, you, you have certain attitudes of mind, you have certain approaches and, and motives that are going to get you into trouble. But that's not what God says. He says, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is to have you, but you must master it. Now, see, that proves, by the way, that God uses sermon illustrations, all right? I just want you to know. And so instead of him saying, uh, just giving him a proposition, he depicts sin as a crouching tiger, hidden dragon. <laughs> he depicts sin as, a, uh, as, a, as an animal coiled over here, ready as you walk out the door to spring on you and destroy you. And let me tell you, think about it. And see, that's, that's, what, that's what illustrations do. They make you think about all the aspects of truth. What it means is that when you sin, the sin doesn't just pass away. The sin becomes a dark reality in your life. It stays with you. It, it, uh, it enhances the wrong motives. It creates bad habits. And at first, you do sin, and then after a while, sin does you. At first, you do sin, but then it, in a sense, creates a reality in your life that comes up, and it will, it will enslave you. It will, uh, it will make it harder and harder for you to actually choose the way you want to live, and you'll be more and more a slave to it. And there's all these ways in which that particular um, illustration, if you just spend a little bit of time thinking about it, informs you and yet at the same time affects you. It's actually quite frightening. It illuminates the mind even as it engages the emotions, right? Uh, the best, by the way, illustration, the best sermon illustration in the history of the world and the most absolutely direct application is Nathan, the prophet, and David. You know, David's committed, he's committed adultery, of course, and Nathan, the prophet, comes. Now, Nathan could do what most preachers do, which is they just divide the text, you can, and, and they explain it, and they don't work on illustrations and metaphors, and you just come in, and you could say, now, uh, 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 King, I would like to preach a sermon on this text in uh, Exodus. Thou shalt not commit adultery. And we'll see, I don't know what David would have said. He could have said, off with your head, or... You know, I, don't worry, I've thought this out. Or he could have said, well, you understand, a person like me, I, I deserve this because I suffer so much for the people. I don't know what he would have said. But instead, as you know, <laughs> Nathan tells this incredibly great story. He brings the two fields of discourse together. And when he tells about the, the, the rich man with all these sheep and the poor man who has only, only one little lamb, if you read, read it carefully, it's, he, he, he descends the detail. He says, that little lamb drank from that man's cup and slept in that man's arm. I mean, this is great storytelling. I mean, by descending to detail, he's bringing you in, right? This little lamb ate, drank from his cup and slept in his arms. And then, of course, when he describes the, uh, um, you know, the, the terrible injustice that the rich man comes and takes the poor man's little lamb and slays it in order to feed his guests, the injustice is out, outrageous. And, of course, he says to David, what should be done with this man? David said, this man should die. And in the, in the most direct sermon application in the history of the world, he says, thou art the man. And what he did was he completely disarmed David. He drew him in, and he showed David 
his own injustice in a way that he could never have done any other way. I mean, uh, and, okay, now, go and do likewise. I mean, it, 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 it is your job to come up with these kinds of metaphors and these kinds of illustrations that just pierce through everybody's, uh, uh, you know, excuses, and that take a proposition that the, the individual would probably have all kinds of excuses and objections and ways of keeping that, keeping that from really penetrating the heart, and you, it's up to you to come up with um, experiences that your listeners have had that, uh, that, and then bring the proposition into that experience and show them that it's the same thing and it disarms them and it just it, it, it takes away their, uh, um, their uh, you know, all the, all, basically the way in which they deny things and the way in which they, they, they keep the, uh, the truth from hitting them square between the eyes. Uh, there's also fun ones, like, for example, I'll just tell you one more, just because it's kind of fun. I was actually talking about this. I was giving a lecture on preaching of the heart uh, in Scotland, and another one of the other speakers was Dick Lucas, just a couple years ago. He's still hale and hearty. And Dick gave this illustration. Um, he said, uh, we spend an awful lot of time uh, trying to figure out what's wrong with the world. But he says, let me tell you a story. And then he used the story of murder on the Orient Express. It was a good story, Agatha Christie uh, novel, of course, a murder mystery, Murder on the Orient Express. It's also so familiar that most people know how it comes out, so he doesn't have to spend too much time explaining it. And he says, you have this, uh, this murder on this, rail, you know, on this railroad uh, uh, trip, and uh, there's 12 other people who are there. There's a man who was murdered, and there's 12 other people who are on the car in the cars, uh, and uh, according to Poirot, the detective, I have to figure out which one of the people have done this. And so he's working on all the clues. Is it this person? Is it this person? You know how it comes out. In the end, the mystery is solved when Poirot figures out they all done it. They're all in on it. And then Dick very deftly says, you know, we're having all of this debate about what is wrong with the world? What is wrong? And labor says it's management, and management says it's labor. You know, and uh, over here, the Democrats say it's the Republicans, the Republicans say it's the Democrats, and it's this and it's that and this and it's that. You want to know what's wrong with the world? We're all in on it. It's our sin. Look at yourself. You're as much a murderer as anyone else. You're all, we're all in on it. Helpful. Very helpful. You know, it, it's, it not, it's not quite like Nathan and David. It's not even like sin is crouching at your door. Uh, but it's disarming, and it's, uh, put it this way, a person who may not necessarily uh, be real excited about the idea that you're all sinners, no one is righteous, no, not one, but that's a disarming, interesting way of getting across. So on you go. So you've got to preach. If you want to reach the heart, preach affectionately from the heart. Preach imaginatively. Uh, turn the eye into an ear. Turn, I mean, turn the ear into an eye. I think that's what Spurgeon said. Don't just tell them the truth, but show them the truth. Uh, thirdly, practically. Now, one of you even asked me about this, and this is such an enormous area application, but I can say something about it. Dan Doriani has written a couple of books in our circles, prob probably the most um, comprehensive books on how do you apply. Uh, uh, of course, uh, Mark Dever online in his Nine Marks uh, you know, on the, uh, in the website has a lot of great stuff on application. Some of you know there's a little bit of uh, debate about the degree to which we can 
apply the text. There are people that are so afraid of moralism that they say, just lift up Christ and don't apply the text. Uh, Andy Stanley has written a book called Communicating for a Change. Yeah. And in it, he says, we shouldn't do expository preaching. We ought to lift up a need, uh, a human need, and uh, focus on that in the sermon, and then bring in a biblical text to solve the need. And he says, that's, that's, what's, that's what people need today. Uh, people don't trust the Bible, so if you just expound the Bible, they're gonna, you're going to lose them. So we don't do expository preaching anymore. Uh, we do, uh, we um, uh, lift up uh, a particular human need, and we bring the Bible to bear on it. That's how you should be preaching. Now, I've already talked to you a couple days ago about why I think that's not the right way to do it. There's a number of reasons why. However, I mean, that's not the right diet. We need to expound. But the reason why Andy Stanley is so concerned, and I think here's where he's right, is he sees that people who stress expository preaching say that you need to apply the text, and yet they just don't do it. You don't spend anywhere near as much time and effort and thought on the application as you do on the exegesis. The application tends to be an afterthought. It's something you do in like the last 15 minutes of preparing the sermon. And as a result, it's just not well thought out, and it's superficial, and in some cases, it really is hardly there. And we all say, you first expound the text, then you apply the text. Every course says that. Everybody agrees to that. But the reality is you put very little thought and industry and, uh, and effort into, uh, into actual uh, application. And that's the reason why he's responding the way he is. It's, I don't think it's the right answer, but he's actually addressing a real problem. So, for example, if you're preaching on... Honesty, and there's plenty of places where the Bible gets to things like integrity and promise-keeping and honesty and that sort of thing. Uh, what are you going to say by way of um, application? I remember some years ago I was preaching on this, and I actually spent a, probably as much time on the application as I did on the exegesis, partly because it was the nice thing about getting old it's very often you get to a text you've preached on before, and even though you need to update your thinking, and you certainly need to make sure that you're not missing anything, very often you don't have to spend quite as much time on figuring out the main point of the passage. And uh, as my years have gone by, I, I've, it's enabled me to take my sermon prep time and spend a little bit more time on um, uh, application. So once I actually called a couple people up, and I said, in your field... What are the traditional ways that people lie? So, for example, <clears throat> one person said, well, there's political lies. Let me give you some examples. I would love to go, but I'll be out of town that day. That's a lie, by the way. Uh, and a lot of times that's what you do, even though you're not going to be out of town. Or I think I'm, you know, well, here's, here's a better one. I, because th- you didn't seem to like that one. Um, <laughs> I think your writing is just a little too sophisticated for our readers, when actually it's just terrible. Okay? Uh, here, here, are bus- here are business lies. Uh, this is actually from, okay, here's a, somebody said, don't say publicly we're for quality when all of your employees know you make unreasonable demands on them so that they know you really don't care about quality. Don't take friends to box seats that belong to the company when they're supposed to be only for clients. Uh, Don't say publicly everything is fine when everybody on your staff knows things aren't. 
Don't put in a big number of orders right before the end of the quarter because even though you know that they're going to be canceled, it'll look good in the year-end figures. Uh, in other words, uh, I got a bunch of great lies as I called people up. And when I started reading them off, because I knew there were people in the business world and the political world, and when I started to read these things off, you could just see the people. Everybody got about three inches shorter. <laughs> it was just fascinating. You know, they're just closer and closer to the seats. Um, and I realized that day, I mean, everybody said, wow, that was really great. And I realized it's because I spent as much time on the application as I had on the exposition, which isn't technically right, uh, because you really, it's much more important to know what the text says, uh, otherwise your application is going to be wrong. So I don't want you to think that they're somehow equally important, but I want you to see that we actually don't spend the time on it. Uh, just a couple other more things, because I have to hasten on. Be careful that your application doesn't always have the same personality. Some of you do all your application in warning. Just, just all the application is like this. Some only encourage and comfort. Some people only urge, you know, you're, you're like, you're the, you're the halftime coach, you know, saying to the team, you can do it, <laughs> you know. And, and it's interesting because we all have our personalities sometimes uh, the application is not actually controlled by the text, it's controlled by your personality. So instead of you really drawing out the text and saying, this is what God is saying to you, instead you, just, you basically are just extending your personality. So some of you are warners, some of you are encouragers and comforters, some of you are uh, coaches, you know, you're, you're, uh, uh, you know, your promotion, mar your marketers, you know, you know how to promote things and you, you're trying to sell things, so be careful about that. Secondly, always think of different kinds of people. At the very least, ask yourself this question. What is in this text for a non-Christian? What is in this text for a mature Christian? What is in this text for an immature, struggling, or maybe new Christian? Even if you ask those three questions, I think that's something like Mark Dever does. If you ask those three questions, you'll always have, at the least at the very end, some really pretty good application. You do have to think about it. Uh, another thing, by the way, is get into dialogues. In other words, if you're going to do an application, imagine the objection. Imagine somebody saying, well, I don't know about that, and have the dialogue outwardly. So say, if you're going to do the application, say, now I know some of you might be thinking this, uh, but please consider this. And some of you might be objecting in this way, or somebody might have a question, and, but consider this, and actually have the dialogue that's probably going to happen inside. So do dialogue. Think of different kinds of people. Be careful about your, um, you know, the, uh, make sure that you, your application has the personality of the text and not the personality of just the preacher. Um, and by the way, when it comes to application, that's the place to go off script. When you sense a pliable moment, when you sense it's getting quiet, when you sense, I, you know, you got them. Uh, don't be so wooden that, that you move on. I mean, maybe, maybe it's clear if point two is the one that seems to be speaking to people, you know, uh, go off script and, and, and uh, elongate a little bit and maybe even get a little more personal and, and, and just say, I really wish, I really wish you could see this. Uh, or God has really been, uh, I think God really wants, you know, something like In other words, get really personal at that point and just go off script when you sense the pliable moment. Those are some other ideas. There's more to say, but let's... Next, preach wondrously. Um, hmm. 
J.R.R. Tolkien wrote this great, I'm not just doing this for Ligon, by the way. This is for you, okay? J.R.R. Tolkien wrote a, a tremendous essay called On Fairy Stories in which he tried to understand, he tried to explain the power and the appeal of fantasy, uh, fairy stories, even science fiction. Uh, he tr why is it that realistic fiction, which is what all the illiterati, you know, say, you've, you know, realistic novels and realistic fiction is what all the, the cultural elites say is important. Meanwhile, the masses are out there imbibing fantasy. We're, we go to movies, we, we, we read stories that talk about uh, uh, these fantastic, supernatural uh, sorts of things. And he said, the reason why we can't get enough of them is this. He says, there's something in the human heart that just so desires several things. We're fascinated with stories in which people escape from time, um, step out of time, escape from death, uh, have love without parting, love that, doesn't, that you don't lose ever, uh, communication with non-human beings, and good finally triumphing over evil. Any story that, even though we know it's fiction, even though we know it's a fairy tale, any story that realistically and well uh, in a good way, depicts stepping outside of time, escaping from death, love without parting, communication with non-human beings, and, uh, and triumph of good over evil. We can't get enough of it. We desperately want it. And even though we know it's fiction, we, even though we know reality is not like that, we just, we, we, we need it to keep going. Why? Well, atheists have their own explanation. But Tolkien says... Christians believe it's because at a deep level all human beings know that that's how life should have been and that maybe that's how life was. And that's what we were made for. We were not made to die. We were not made, we were not made to see evil uh, triumphing. And, and here's what's intriguing. Uh, Tolkien essentially says this. If Jesus Christ was really raised from the dead, then through faith in him, you, could literally, you will literally have those things. Do you know that? If you're a Christian, you believe Jesus was raised from the dead and that, and that you believe in him, do you realize you are going to eventually escape death? You are going to step outside of time. You are going to communicate with non-human beings. You will see good triumph and you will have love that you, you, you have loved ones and you have love relationships that you will never, ever, 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 ever lose. Now, what do you do with that? That's amazing. That's wonderful. Do you preach as if those things are realities? Do you preach in such a way that the people who hear that, the Christians, realize that? I mean, why are we upset about anything if that's the case? You know, why aren't we always, you know, just walking about six inches above the pavement? Well, the reason is because we still live in a world in which, frankly, we're not built for. We weren't, we weren't built for death originally. We weren't built for these things. Of course it's going to get us down. Of course we're going to suffer. Of course, we're going, to be, we're going to cry. But the fact is that, this, that the gospel is not just here's the truth and someday we're going to go to heaven. No, it's, these are the deepest. The gospel actually fulfills the deepest longings of the human breast. Everybody's out there paying zillions of dollars just to even watch fiction that makes them feel like maybe this is true for a second, even though in their heads they say, no, it's not true. And even just, even just the story makes people feel better. And yet you have the reality. It's coming. Now, there's a couple ways to use that, by the way. One of them is this. If I'm doing apologetics, 
I, I go through that very same thing. I just say those five things, and if Jesus Christ is raised from the dead, it's true. And then I look at non-Christians, and I say, why wouldn't you at least want that to be true? You do want that to be true. Why don't you at least check out whether Jesus was raised from the dead? Don't tell me that it wouldn't be great if that was true. How dare you be not motivated to find out about Christianity? But what I want to say to Christians is, you know, have that note of wonder. Realize that this is true, that, and we're going to have all this. Uh, somehow, when you preach, you've got to be able to preach in a way that, I don't know how to say it, that, that is always tinged with that. Always tinged with that. Uh, boy, if you, if you preach with flat affect, when, don't, you, don't you want people, as they're hearing you preach, to know that the echoes of all these stories that over the years have kept us going, that we always thought were nothing but fairy tales, which can be really true for us in Jesus Christ, that this is the hope that we've all been looking for. This is the love that we've been looking for all of our lives. You know, you know just as Jewel the Unicorn says at the very end, uh, this is the country I was searching for all my life and I never knew it. And somehow that wonder has got to come through as you preach. Sometimes when you get near doctrines in which you're getting close to these uh, you're basically saying it's true what the stories say, uh, what the fairy tales sort of allude to, actually in Jesus Christ will come true. You've got to have that note of wonder. Lastly, Christocentric. I think I told you before. When my, Kathy always says to me that when, I'm, when I get to Jesus, very often the sermon goes from being a Sunday school lecture to being a sermon. That's how she put it. Um, so, for example... <clears throat> Let's just say you're preaching on the Beatitudes. And most everybody says, rightly, that the Beatitudes actually all uh, describe not different groups of people, but what a Christian should be, right? The, the Beatitudes describe those who are poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of God, right? Those who mourn, they'll be comforted. Uh, those who are uh, hunger and thirst after righteousness, they will be filled. Uh, those who are meek, they will inherit the earth. Are those different groups of people? No. Almost all the commentators say these are all descriptions of what a Christian should be, and it's true. You must be poor in spirit. You have to humble yourself and admit your sin. Uh, you need to mourn over your sins. You need to hunger and thirst after righteousness. Uh, you need to be meek and, and, uh, and compliant to God and, and submissive to his will. So you go through all those things, and um, that's inspiring. It's uh, very helpful. In a way, it's, that's a list of things you have to do in order to be a Christian. It's actually also, uh, you could actually, I've, I heard Dr. Lloyd-Jones says, in, in one sense, this is how you become a Christian. Be poor in spirit, mourn for your sin, hunger and thirst for righteousness, and you know, give your life to God. And it's also how you live the Christian life. So it's all very instructive, and it's all very inspiring. But, and here I'm following Ian Duguid a little bit in his book on this. How is it possible that we are a Christian? It, uh, and I heard Dick Lucas do this too once. He says, why is it possible for us to be rich as kings spiritually? Because Jesus Christ was stripped naked and became poor. Why is it possible for us to be comforted? Only because Jesus Christ mourned and cried in the garden and on the cross he cried out in the dark. Why is it possible for us to be filled with righteousness? Because Jesus Christ on the cross said, I thirst. And why is it possible for us to inherit the earth? Because Jesus Christ became the meek lamb of God. 
And see, when you say, yes, the Beatitudes mainly are about us, but they also point to the one who made it possible for us to do all that and to be all that. Jesus was poor in spirit. Jesus mourned in the dark. Jesus became the meek lamb of God. Jesus cried out, I thirst so we could be filled. And when you get there, people stop taking notes. Right? They stop taking notes. Because when you get to Jesus, the Sunday school lesson becomes a sermon. And the heart is, is grabbed because you're being aesthetic. You're showing something that's beautiful, not just something that's useful. So there we go. Affectionately, imaginatively, practically, wondrously, Christocentrically, that's how you preach to the heart. Okay, let's do some Q&A now. Thank you.